0: I'd like, y'all, I'd like to state for the record that this may be the first time that a box of Quaker Oats is assisting in an episode of our podcast. I'm not saying any podcast. I'm sure a box of Quaker Oats has assisted in another podcast, but I have my phone propped up against one right now.
1: Did you get okay. a secret sponsorship from Quaker Oats you want
0: us to run? Is that what this is? <laughs> yeah, shh, It's Quaker business.
2: <laughs> Sean and Jeremy, have we ever talked about Quaker oats?
0: <laughs> Why, no, Sean. Tell us. Do tell.
1: <laughs> More at quakeroats.com. <laughs>
2: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, professional sayer of Good Morning,
0: Peter Cook. Good night. Sorry, I'm having an off day. Oh my
2: gosh. (laughs) 100% nailed it. We're also, of course, joined by our other regular co-host, limited edition candy hoarder and amateur dietitian, Jeremy Ruggles.
1: What the sugar lobby doesn't want you to know is that the other ingredients negate the sugar.
2: (laughs) What ingredients would those be?
1: Red, 43. Yellow, 13. Purple,
2: 91. Nothing but true facts on this episode If I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm a researcher. So, Peter, you picked out a record to present to the squad this week, am I right? Boy,
0: I sure did, Sean.
2: Uh, and would this record happen to be, say, number 58 on Al Cooper's list of 100 greatest recordings of all time?
0: Of course. What, what other record would I pick?
2: <laughs> I don't know what other record you would pick. It just seems a very appropriate pick for this week.
0: I know. You want to tell us a little bit about it and then
2: maybe play a track?
0: So it's a record by a gentleman named andy pratt it's his self-titled record it came out on columbia in 1973 and the opening song is called avenging annie and i would like to start with that song
2: his only hit from his career right
0: yeah that is correct
2: all right appropriate place to start jeremy cue it up bring that beat back
1: Woody Guthrie-inspired tune I've ever heard.
0: Yeah, it was inspired by Woody Guthrie. What song would that be, Jeremy?
1: Pretty Boy Floyd.
0: You got it. Yeah, that was written by Andy Pratt in the summer of 1972 at his mother's house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on her Steinway Baby Grand piano. He'd just recently broken up with his first wife, and believe it or not, he was stoned. He'd been listening to the Birds' album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, an album that oddly comes up a lot on this podcast, and in particular, their version of Woody Guthrie's Pretty Boy Floyd, he kept spinning over and over, so he shut off the record player, started playing that on the piano, and started altering Woody's lyrics, so then that Bach-like piano part came out of his fingers, and he began singing in a falsetto, taking on the part of a woman character named Avenging Annie. So a whole story developed, which was essentially a fantasy version of his relationship with his ex-wife, combined with the outlaw theme of the American West. I've seen some people theorize Annie Oakley as another inspiration in that song. It is an odd decision, Jeremy. I will agree with you on that. I didn't say it was odd. You said strangest? Oh, yeah, I guess I did say that. (laughs) Those words (laughs) roughly mean the same thing.
2: (laughs) Jeremy has a very strict disagreement on uh, people using either of those words in the complete improper context.
1: (laughs) I guess for some reason, when you said it, I was thinking that this is one of the least odd songs on the album. Well, that's true. (laughs) You are correct. It
0: is one of the least odd songs on the album, and it was the single. It, It made some impact on the Billboard charts back in 1973. He uh, recorded a demo of that song, which became a hit at Brown University Radio, the station WBRU, in 1972. And in early 1973, he was signed to Columbia Records by Clive Davis, the record executive who had signed a young artist named Bruce Springsteen, who had just released his debut album. You guys ever heard of this Bruce Springsteen fella?
1: Yes, he is the boss.
0: In fact, one version of the Avenging Annie single, one of the promotional versions, had Bruce Springsteen's Blinded by the Light as the B-side. Whoa. Far out. It kind of makes sense, though. They, they
2: oddly fit together a little bit. It's also one of my least favorite boss songs, by the way.
0: Yeah, and of course, his version is not the popular version that plays on classic rock radio. I think that's Manfred Mann.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I actually don't know how well that did as a single for The Boss. It's definitely not one that I hear it wouldn't be at the forefront of his catalog these days. As far as songs that people talk about when it comes to The Boss, I think he's had a little bit of a career yeah. since then. But this is it's this true. is the song that if people are talking about Andy Pratt, it's probably the song that they're going to talk about first. It did reach number 78 on the Billboard Hot 100 spent a total of 10 weeks on the charts, you know, so it's not a major hit, but regionally it did better in some areas more than others. And it was covered by Roger Daltrey of The Who on his 1977 solo album, One of the Boys. That was released as a single in October of that year and reached number 88 in the United States. He didn't sing it from a woman's perspective, however. Daltrey didn't take on that character, and Andy Pratt is very quick to say that he believes... The Daltry version is inferior to his own <laughs> he'll t- He'll <laughs> tell you that
1: yeah, I read a couple of interviews with Andy in preparation, and they all always ask about avenging Annie, and he always seems to slip in about how Roger Daltry's version was inferior
0: to his <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does not hesitate to bring that up. I mean, when you're right, you're right, you know? He does say he was honored, though, that an artist of that stature would cover a song of his. So it's funny, though, yeah. He always does bring that up. The reason that I picked this album is because this was another one of the records that Sean and I found when we were going through the bins working at the record store several years ago. The project that we were trying to determine what all of the... uh, Oddball or just sort of unknown to us records were in the store, and could we hype them to get them out of there? This one definitely stood out because it was so strange and idiosyncratic, would be a word that I think you could use to describe this album. True.
2: Yeah, especially when you're going through a stack of 20, 50 records in a day and just dropping the needle on stuff you never heard. Most of it ends up sounding kind of the same and generic and a little bit boring. You're like, okay, I know why this never sells. But then occasionally you drop the needle on something like this Andy Pratt record, and it just completely stands out, maybe not even in a way that is music you like at first, but it's it's an interesting experience to at least counter encounter something this left of center, especially for a record this old.
0: yeah, and the way that the record looks, you don't expect it to sound this way with he's on the cover, it looks kind of like a breezy California singer songwriter album from the early 1970s and that's not what you get from it
2: yeah you're definitely expecting some like loggins and messina vibe from the album cover
0: i think he was sort of marketed that way even though he wasn't necessarily didn't fit into that and as i said yeah it kind of looks like a breezy singer songwriter from california he is as east coast as they get and you can tell as this record gets darker and darker that he experiences winters it's
1: not summer all you mean illuminati He's Illuminati.
0: (laughs) You think is that what you picked up from this, Jeremy?
1: Are you gonna get into that? Well, you might You gonna talk about his grandpa? Gonna talk about Pratt Uh, Institute?
0: Yeah, I am gonna talk about that. (laughs) And I'm glad that you're aware of that. It will be coming up. That's actually
1: I ended up spending more time reading about Pratt Institute than I did Andy Pratt by the end of it.
0: (laughs) It's an interesting part of his story and he doesn't really in his promotional stuff, he has a presence on the internet, and he doesn't really bring that up, as far as I can tell. He he leaves that conveniently out of his story a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, rich boys always do.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You it, Well, and there's a, a few things about the way his story is presented that I find interesting, and we can talk more about that. I think I'd like to play another track before we get into that. And it would be the second song where things really there. Obviously his falsetto on that first song is one, maybe aside from Jeremy pointing out when we listened to the first song that there was that, what he felt was an unnecessary pitter patter at the beginning of the album, which Jeremy said was the first sign that things were going to go awry. (laughs) That wasn't necessary at the beginning of the album. But I think his falsetto might be another one of the alarming characteristics of that first song i think it works overall i think it's not uncommercial but it's a little alarming when you first hear it i
1: kind of like it it reminds me of like bg singing i kind of dig it
0: yeah it is it's like bgs are even a more recent artist is like mika <laughs> someone like that who sings yeah. in a falsetto like that no i i think it works and it's in service of the song i think there are some other decisions made on this record that maybe aren't always in service of the song agreed and Here it is let's go into inside me wants out
2: and idiosyncratic song on this album imagine
0: that more so than the first song i would say
2: i was thinking about this a lot earlier when I was revisiting this album because I've owned it for a long time but I don't very often take it out and play it through and i i'm struggling to think of another record that has so many elements that I love right next to so many elements that I really don't like and sometimes it happens like within seconds of each other just bouncing back like i just I don't entirely know how to feel about this record. I definitely respect it, though. Agreed.
0: Yeah, I hadn't listened to it in a long time. Honestly, probably since around the time we first discovered it five or six years ago. <laughs> and in my mind, it was I liked it more consistently than I think I actually do. However, I also kind of have the same feeling as you that I really appreciate. I, I feel like he takes so many chances and tries so many different and interesting things that sometimes land and sometimes don't for me. But yeah. just to hear something on a mainstream record from this time period doing that, I, I have great respect for it for that reason.
1: It's far out that it came out on Columbia Records to me. And like you guys said, there's he's trying to pack so many things into there, and you can hear like bits of singers that i don't know who's ripping off who but there's like bowie and mcjagger kind of things and like i mentioned previously like bg's kind of falsetto there's a lot of interesting vocal techniques going on interesting engineering things going on interesting arrangements proggy rhythms there's just a ton he's trying to pack in and i feel like he's just trying to pack in too much
0: I can agree with that. And just as far as sometimes it's not even just song to song, but yeah, like within one section of of a song to the next, it doesn't always work in this song or I'm I'm sorry on this album. It doesn't always work on this album. Uh, Sean, you were saying you have a theory about something.
2: Yeah, I have a theory I'd like you guys to weigh in on. I feel like it's not necessary, but it would probably really help. If you were a fan of Ween and/or They Might Be Giants, to uh, appreciate this album,
0: as the biggest Ween and They Might Be Giants fan on this podcast, I can confirm.
2: So that was my suspicion. I was I was chatting with Jeremy earlier. I'm like Jeremy, you uh you hate these bands as much as I do, right? Is that why we both don't like this record as much as Peter?
1: I like this album more than either of those bands.
2: Oh, I do as well, for sure.
0: I think it's mostly in my wheelhouse, though, of, of the three of us. This is probably I'm the one that's really going to be gravitating towards this one.
2: Yeah, you have a much better appetite for quirky music than Jeremy <laughs> and I.
0: It tastes pretty good to me. And it doesn't always work for me, though. It, it's I, It almost feels too disparate at, at times.
2: I, for one, would like to hear more about this mysterious, quirky fellow.
0: Yeah. Well, we, we can go into his story, which Jeremy has already teased at a little bit of the hidden background of of Andy Pratt. He was born in Boston, Massachusetts. I think we did mention he was from Boston. He was born on January 25th, 1947, into a well-to-do family. That's probably understating it a little bit. His great-grandfather, Charles Pratt, was an oil industry pioneer. I think he was the guy from uh, There Will Be Blood. I'm sure that was him. Pretty much. Daniel (laughs) Day-Lewis. He founded the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, which is now a renowned art institute. And Andy's father, Edwin, was headmaster of Buckingham, Brown, and Nichols, a private school which Andy Pratt attended as a youngster. Now, before I go any further, it sounds like Jeremy really looked more into the Pratt family and the Pratt Institute. What do you have to tell us?
1: Ooh, this goes all the way up, guys. This goes honestly... To the leader of the free world. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Andy Pratt's grandfather, Charles Pratt, started the Pratt Institute. And I felt it kept going like way back and forth in my mind because Charles was an oil baron and made an unthinkable amount of money selling his company to Andrew Carnegie but then he decided to start the Pratt Institute as a an affordable college where normal people could go to college and became the first institute or university to allow people in regardless of their race, gender or creed. They were the very first one, bad origin but like good mission. But then probably their most famous Attendee was one Fred Trump, ooh. father of Donald Trump,
2: president of the United States. Oh, that leader of the free world. Okay, I thought we were talking about Jeff Bezos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Valid point. Point taken, Sean. When
0: when you say the free world, I don't think Trump. Not, ooh. Ooh, not to get political. <laughs>
2: you settle down. We don't want to offend nobody. No, I will say no more. I kind of do. <laughs>
1: i have mixed feelings on uh, the pratt legacy but it's very clear that andy grew up very wealthy and well-to-do from cambridge and attended harvard i believe maybe you're getting
0: there i was going to get there he did go to harvard and i think eventually fathered chris pratt the actor no that's not true the (laughs) the Pratt story does not end with Chris Pratt. It apparently ends with Donald Trump. So yeah. uh, Yeah. Let's get back into Andy. We'll go back to his childhood before he gets to Harvard. He was the youngest of four children and his mother, Eileen was a classical pianist. So piano lessons, I'm sorry. He had piano lessons when he was young. She used to take him to the symphony every week that's what every everyone has that privilege, right? Yes. We all remember going to the symphony every week growing up. His sister Wendy gave him a baritone ukulele when he was young and they would play music together. So this eventually led to him playing guitar and he learned eventually learned a wide variety of instruments. On this album he's credited on guitars, bass guitars I saw on a a YouTube comment. He he seems to have a pretty he's pretty active on the internet, especially on his YouTube videos, and he commented that he played all the bass guitars on "Avenging Annie" the song. <laughs> so I think there's multiple bass guitars happening in there. Uh, piano, accordion, sitar. There is some sitar on this record. I don't believe we're going to hear it in any of the selections that I've chosen for today. Tabla, clavinet. He's he's got a lot of credits on this album. Uh, as he grew up and. He became a fan of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, so there's that pop influence. I think you, you can hear the classical influence. He's obviously a trained player, but there's definitely a pop influence as well that you can hear on this record. And as we mentioned, he went on to graduate from Harvard with a degree in literature in 1968, and he became active in the Cambridge, Massachusetts scene, playing shows with bands such as the Pixies, Morphine, and Galaxy 500. No, that's I'm just kidding. false <laughs> obviously got him. obviously not true that was, a little, it was about a decade and a half later he played with some different bands i think he played in these bands the vagabonds butter and the chosen few and he actually this is not his first album and that's one of the first things that doesn't seem to get brought up a lot is that he did put out a record before the self-titled record it was i believe recorded in 1969 and released on polydor in 1970 and polydors obviously that's not an independent label that's like a known label the album was called records are like life and it's a twisted mashup of like blues folk jazz classical and pop he said he was listening to stuff like mccoy tyner and brazil 66 which is is that sergio mendez brazil 66 yeah yes yeah. okay and that often doesn't get brought up the way the story is told is you know he like wrote avenging annie and it got picked up by like a local radio and then he got signed but clearly he had some foot in the door in the the record industry prior to that i have seen him mention that he put out that album before the the self-titled one that we're listening to today but as far as like what happened there i don't really know it's it's hard to it's it's almost like this phantom record that he put out but he does describe being a part of the boston of that record that first record being part of the boston sound that was around at the time he he compared it to groups like jay giles band and ultimate spinach which i don't i get maybe ultimate spinach a little bit i don't really hear jay giles band although they had several different phases of their career so maybe they were more jazzy and psychedelic at the beginning Definitely not Angel as a centerfold, but that's way down the line. I think they were bluesier at the beginning.
1: How do you know so Could much be. about Jay Giles' band?
0: I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and was forced to listen to classic rock stations. Wow, okay. As a youngster, I know you're from Portage. Maybe they don't play some Jay Giles out there as much. No.
2: Yeah, what do they listen to in Portage, Jeremy?
1: man i wanted a clever thing to come out of my mouth but it didn't happen
0: olivia newton john (laughs) yeah we'll go with that what do they listen to in battle creek sean what did you what was forced down your eardrums
1: tony the tiger versions of queen hits
2: no it's metallica because like one of the guys from that band lived just outside of battle creek or something i don't know jason newstead yeah there you go thanks for enlightening us
0: we don't want to get that wrong for all of our metallica listeners metallica (laughs) fan base (laughs) all right we're out in the weeds we're out in the weeds now
1: (laughs) thank you for acknowledging that finally (laughs) reel it in
0: so yeah this uh his self-titled second album was recorded at Angus Studios in Fayville, Massachusetts. Some sources I saw said that he had a hand in building that studio. I think he had some engineering skills, although I did see an interview where he also described himself as very ADD and it's kind of set back his career, he feels, as far as being able as discipline goes. So it's interesting that he's sometimes mentioned as being you know innovative in his engineering skills. And other times he feels like he's totally scatterbrained and Unable to do as much as he'd like. Of course, that's probably personal insight. He could still be a wizard with the the audio engineering skills. Could be. A lot of the players on this are associated with that studio and the scene around that part of Massachusetts. A couple of names, bigger names, or ones that seem to be outside of that sphere that appear on it. Our guy, I hope I say the name right, Juma Santos. He's on congas. Originally, his name was Jim Riley. He had played uh, the congas on Bitches Brew just a few years prior.
2: That's a heavy association.
0: Yeah. Another player that appears on this that seems to have been uh, just about a gazillion records is Abraham Laboriel. Is that name? He's like a legendary session bassist. Does that name ring a bell to either of you?
2: It does not. Nope. I,
0: I don't know. I hope I'm saying it right. Ab- Abraham Laboriel. Oh, you want the list? You want the list of who Abraham Laboriel has worked with?
2: Do it. Give me that list.
0: Here's another name that I'm not certain of the first name. Is it Al Jarreau? Is that how you say his name?
2: Yeah, it's, that's how I normally Al hear Jero, it. Al Jarreau,
0: Al Jarreau. Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, Herb Alpert, Herbie Hancock, Dolly Parton, Hanson, <laughs> Elton John, Chris Isaac, Barbara Streisand, George Benson, Paul Simon, Michael Jackson, Lisa Loeb, Madonna, Christopher Cross, and this is literally, I, that's only about half of the names that his Wikipedia article had. But this is how it ends. And sometimes DeBarge. <laughs> Apparently he works with all those other <laughs> artists all the time. And sometimes DeBarge. And sometimes why? <laughs> I've heard of
1: at least three of those names.
0: I'm guessing they're Madonna, Hanson, and Chris Isaac. Yes. I mean, I know you have all three of those in your collection.
2: True we're gonna have to teach you about stevie wonder jeremy
0: i'm sure jeremy knows about stevie wonder he's from michigan
2: never heard of him
0: Uh, another name on here is a guy named john nagy and he's on an instrument called the mandola it's i guess it's to the mandolin what the viola is to the violin the mandola he's from the band earth opera with david grisman either of you heard of david grisman
2: nope yeah i see that name around
0: I associate him with like Jerry Garcia and that scene. I feel like when I had a lot of, uh, shall we say, crunchy friends. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the name David Grisman came up a lot then. And I believe that that is the instrument that he's playing on the next song. I want to feature, which is for me, the most far out song on the record. And I almost didn't want to feature this song because it's, the tone of it is just so dark and weird that i thought it might throw things off but the fact that a song that sounds this outsider and off kilter is appearing on a dollar bin record i I think it'd be a crime to not feature it and it's the last song on the album it's called deer song
1: deer song
0: let's listen to that next before we talk some more Mm -hmm.
1: All over the forests of Maine, and the snow is all white on the pines, and the sad, laughing cry of the seagull dies just like mine. And my disguise But the green trees all groaned at the sight of a wound
2: So I'm sure our legions of devoted fans immediately picked up on the same thing I did with that track, which is it sounds remarkably like Jeremy Ruggles actual recorded solo material. Like the way his voice sounds, his phrasing, some of the instrumentation, it really just sounds like that could be a Jeremy Ruggles band track.
0: How do you feel about that, Jeremy?
1: I feel exposed. My whole songwriting Everything was developed off of The Deer Song by Andy Pratt, and now it's laid <laughs> bare to the world.
2: We thought no one would know. No one would dive deep enough into the dollar bins to expose your dirty secrets. That's why Jeremy
0: gave us so much pushback on this album. True. I tried to dodge <laughs> yeah, it.
2: Yeah, guys, I've heard that record. It's not that good. We should probably do anything else.
1: <laughs> guys, there's like... 23 million other white dudes making music just like that too it's
2: not just me you're the only one that matters to
1: us though jeremy oh you're so sweet
0: (laughs) way to bring it back that
1: was creepy song though
0: it is and it's the last song it's the way he goes out on if you think about the contrast of where the album started with avenging annie it's it's an odd song for him to i feel like have written around this time and then include on the album as the last song but I love it for that.
1: Another wacky choice <laughs> by this wacky
0: guy. <laughs> he is a wacky guy. He's, but it's funny because I feel like he has some qualities that are sort of outsider, but he's also clearly very well trained musically. So it, it makes for an interesting mashup.
1: True. What do you do after this? What yeah. happened? He made this.
0: He made this, which is definitely his most. It's probably the one you're gonna find the most, and you'll definitely find this album for cheap. However, it's actually not his most successful album. So, his touring band for the album included a young jazz guitarist named John Schofield. Ah, yes, I'm sure both Legendary. of you. I'm sure both of you know him.
2: Yeah, I saw him live once. He was actually one of the better concerts I've ever seen.
0: I saw him.
1: Play with medesky Martin and Wood, and it was very good.
2: Wait, did we see the same concert, Jeremy? Where did you see them? I saw that at Bonnaroo. Oh, okay. I saw him at the Detroit Jazz Festival. Oh,
0: I think medesky Martin and Wood tour a ton, and so does John Scofield.
2: Yeah, they did a couple records together, so they collaborate frequently.
0: It's another. Those are names that I also knew from the. uh, What did What did you use to describe my hippie friends, Jeremy? Crunchy, your crunchy <laughs> friends. The crunchy friends from the crunchy days.
2: Yeah, the the granola squad definitely approve of Mideski, Martin, and Wood.
0: So despite a promising start, this album that we're listening to only experienced modest sales outside of the northeastern United States. And Columbia, the record company, opted not to renew Pratt's contract the following year. And things got worse for Andy Pratt in 1975 when his father passed away. So to cope with all that, he enrolled in Boston's Life Institute, seemingly searching for a higher meaning in life. And in 1976, he signed with Atlantic and worked with producer Arif Mardin on his third studio album, which was called Resolution. And that is his best-selling album, even though I don't think it had any real uh, radio play. It's his best-selling, got the most critical praise from that. Rolling Stone wrote, By reviving the dream of rock as an art and then reinventing it, Pratt has forever changed the face of rock. That's a lot to live up to. It sounds like uh, hyperbole, but I think it's his, artistically, is his most successful album. He really loses a lot of the more experimental elements that were more ornamental on this record that didn't, don't necessarily always benefit the song. And it's much more streamlined and it's really powerful record. He toured opening for groups like the band and Loggins and Messina. I think we mentioned Loggins and Messina earlier. We sure did, but it was, yeah. And it was still only a modest commercial success though, despite all the praise that that album got. And you can find that one, those are the probably the two records of his that you're going to find are the self-titled that we're listening to today, and Resolution is probably right behind that. You have a good chance of finding that. I don't know, Sean, if you if you've seen that one as much as as this record.
2: Yeah, almost fifty-fifty between the two. It's definitely hard to find the first record that's actually like a ten to fifteen-dollar album now.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the his very first album is a bit more rare. He eventually converted to Christianity and moved to Europe. He lived in Holland and then Belgium. He married a Dutch woman in 1988. Reportedly, he's returned stateside and is now in New England, I I think in Boston again. I think he went back to his home. He continues to release music through a variety of independent labels. And he published a memoir in 2006 called Shiver Through the Night, which was the name of the album that followed Resolution. I haven't heard that one. As far as listening or really investigating musically, I I didn't go beyond resolution. I'm pretty limited to his first three albums in my knowledge. I don't know if either of you really investigated what he's been up to.
2: No, not really.
0: There was something that said that he stepped away from music for a number of years and then returned. But as far as I can tell, he's been pretty consistently putting out material. I don't think three or more than three or four years have gone by he hasn't released something and particularly in the last like couple decades, there seems to be a lot of stuff that he released. And I wasn't sure a lot of them may be coming out on CDs or maybe even digitally. It's it's, it seems like his discography gets hard to track after a certain point. Yeah.
2: He put out three records in 2003.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like mad prolific. At times for someone who who says the ADD prevents him from doing as as much as he'd like.
1: Oh, man. I wonder how much he'd like to do then.
0: (laughs) That's a little. (laughs) We're talking Viper level prolific. I got to mention Viper two episodes in a row. Wow. Well done. (laughs) But Viper's the new Bohannon. Now, uh, R.I.P. Bohannon. R.I.P.
2: R.I.P. Glad we could send him off while he was still with us.
0: Well, I don't have much more I want to say about Andy Pratt. I think he's a really interesting artist that's uh you know, it's it's funny cuz he he is one that I think in his time got some hype and is just largely forgotten, but he he seems like a really cool guy from the interviews I've watched. He's it, it's interesting. I feel like his music is quirkier than he actually is. He seems a little eccentric when you hear him talking, but he's pretty straightforward. And then he, I saw, I watched a video of him playing the deer song and he lets the freak flag fly <laughs> mad respect. I feel like maybe I've said too many times that maybe some of the things on this album don't work. What does work, I think works really well. And I, and I think it's a really unique bargain bin find.
2: Yeah. And that, that's kind of what I was getting at earlier is uh, I've heard plenty of records that I just don't like, or feel like it's not for me, but it's interesting how much of this record I do like for all the elements that I don't. You know, there's there's something going on with this guy and with his music for sure.
1: Yeah. Ninety percent of the time, I really liked what I was hearing. It's just that other 10 percent that would come out of nowhere. We didn't listen to it, but there's one song where there's like a chipmunk voice, like jazz scat solo. Yeah. And it's my like favorite song I heard on the album up until that came in. And then I was like, why did you do that?
0: (laughs) Yeah. It makes it interesting that, and I've, the fact that it's his, it's not his first album, but it, it, some of the, it kind of, the decisions make give it a more almost homemade feel like someone finding their voice for sure. Another artist that I, th- it reminds me of, maybe you will, you two will agree or disagree. One of the, I was trying to think of similar artists. We talk, we've been doing that a little bit lately and I did this This is an artist that I think was for a long time a dollar bin record, but is a little more revered now, and his albums have gone up in price a little, is Todd Rundgren.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a very good comparison, yeah.
1: You can still find a lot of Todd Rundgren in the dollar bins. The better ones are going up, but...
2: Yeah, but even those are still pretty easy to find in the dollar bins for the stores that aren't uh, keeping up with the, the changing times and prices. Yeah.
0: I think From I Mary paid Harry? seven bucks... Were you going to say Harry Nilsson, Jeremy? Yeah,
2: Harry Nilsson I could see a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Especially his weirder stuff, like the soundtrack to The Point.
0: That was the next name on my list. Uh, and if, I'd say he's in the same category, that his stuff was in the dollar bin for ages. And now, ever since that documentary came out, his stuff has gone up in price. Excellent.
2: Yeah, the, the Todd Rundgren especially is good, because I was thinking that I'm hearing a lot of like progressive rock elements in here, but I would never call this a progressive rock album. So guys like Todd that tow the line between pop and prog are a really good comparison.
0: One more group I th- thought of that are a little later on. They're from the eighties is prefab sprout. And I don't really know what, how their stuff gets priced, but they kind of ride that line between like pop perfection and quirkiness.
2: Yeah. Oh, you know, another one that's perfect is the band Split Ends. Mm. Are either of you guys familiar with them?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They were pre, they, they actually went on to become Crowded House.
2: Oh, right. I always forget that. Yeah. But yeah. Their, their stuff has a really interesting mix of pop and like almost a musical theater influence, but they're a little later. They're more of a new wave kind of side of the, the pop world. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I have their album that has the, uh, the record, the physical record itself holograms not the right word for it i'm i'm drawing a blank on what that's called when the record like glitters colors um like the etchings in it
2: yeah i know what you're talking about i f- i forget what the correct term is yeah it's not quite a hologram not quite uh, lenticular
0: <laughs> our listeners you can holler at us on it, i'd buy that podcast at gmail.com with the correct answer to what that is we can't look it up on the internet ourselves. apparently
2: nope. yeah and also uh let us know what your favorite post 1970s andy pratt record is what's the late period gem that we need to dig into
0: <laughs> yeah there you go there's some homework for our listeners some <laughs> some feedback give us some feedback well uh, that is all i have there was one other single that seems to have been released from this album that i don't really think got a great deal of promotion. that's the song, give it all to music, which is a much more straightforward song than any of the ones that we've featured on this episode. Any y'all got anything else before we get out of here?
2: Yeah. One more comparison. Buzzy Linhart,
0: Buzzy Linhart. Good one.
1: Good one. And that's, I think he's dollar bin ish too, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. A very similar thing. um, Like, Highly ambitious, quirky music that was critically acclaimed and never found much of a commercial audience. And he just died like a few months ago. Uh, definitely plan on doing a Buzzy Linhart record in the near future on this podcast. Cool. Good teaser. Excellent.
1: Well, this has been another pretty good episode of I by That for a Dollar. You shut your mouth. I'm just this kidding. Was it was great.
2: Like all of them. It was great. Modern masterpiece. We've somehow found a way to raise the bar a little bit higher once again. Every
1: week, we just bump that bar up a little bit. A few little millimeters inching it up. My name has been Jeremy Ruggles,
2: and it still is. (laughs) I am, was, and ever shall be Sean Hartman.
0: I am sometimes Peter Damien Juan Diego Cook, but most often I am Peter Cook. Goodbye.
2: And sometimes Peter Man. And
0: sometimes Peter Man. Good point, Sean. Thanks, everyone.
1: Right now, I'm alone, walking through heaven all by myself. Somebody sent me home, but I don't blame her. I did it myself.
2: Thank you for listening to another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We'd like to gently remind you once again, that we have a Patreon account. If you really love our work and you would like to support us monetarily, you can find us on the Patreon. Just search I'd buy that for a dollar or patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. We have different tiered levels of rewards based on the amount of money you would like to give. You can get uh, advanced links to the episodes before they're posted publicly. You can listen to Patreon-exclusive episodes that we are posting once a month, or you can even sign up for our vinyl subscription plan, where once a month we will mail you some genuine dollar bin gems along with a handwritten note on why we like them. Thanks for your support, whether it's monetary or not. We appreciate all of you, and keep listening to more episodes. so much music, so much